Our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sapper, the world's leading augmented reality platform and creative studio. With over 11 years of experience working with the world's biggest brands through Zapper Creative Studio. Zapper also has an award-winning web AR platform, Zapworks, that lets you create your own mobile AR magic. Finally, check out their Zap Box, the most affordable mixed reality headset on the planet. Start creating AR over at zap.works or talk to them about your next AR project at zapper.com. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It's May 12th, 2023. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. And uh, Ted, great to see you back in your natural habitat. You too. Good morning. Yeah, I'm back in my little uh, cave that uh, we have lived through our, you know, everybody found their pandemic spot, right? And, uh, <laughs> we got comfortable in our little I know. spot. We, we, and, uh, one day we should have a little review of each of our man caves, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's a whole show. But uh, we got a great guest uh, with us today, Juiced Vandernan. Uh, he is a uh, entrepreneur and uh, as well as a, a, a uh, professor at NYU. Uh, he had a company called Superdata that followed video games. Uh, it was sold to Nielsen several years ago. He's written a great book, One Up, about the video games business. So uh, lots going on in video games and the metaverse. And uh, his newsletter is terrific. So uh, we'll hear from him live and in person in a few minutes. Uh, but uh, first, let's talk about the news this week. Fortunately, not as dead as last week, Google I.O., brought us a ton of news, um, both about their plans for AR, uh, as well as their uh, continued focus on AI. Yeah, and promoting the foldable phone. Apparently, uh, people want foldable phones, I guess. (laughs) We'll see. Um, Well, I've been saying for a long time that I think these foldable phones are a real thing. And as we do more and more on our phones, people are going to want to be able to have a bigger screen. I think AR Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, they were promoting visual search. So if you're doing visual search, a larger screen is going to be really helpful. Um, Sure. You know, the paper hanger syndrome is real, though. I've been playing Peridot. That's the other big story Mm -hmm. uh, is Niantic's new game, which is a mashup of uh, things they've done with Pokemon Go and the uh, Tamaguchi or yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I started, I loaded it up a couple of days ago and <laughs> was playing around a little bit with it in my sort of limited, uh, you know, sort of homebound world. Um, but uh, it's funny. Do you guys sort of reflect on this that every like five or six years? The, the the revenge or the return of Tamagotchi tries another turn at the wheel, right? Like it's <laughs> everybody's trying to bring a virtual pet I, back to life. Over I, and over. I don't know if people remember them. Maybe some people don't, or but you know, it's the size of like an Airbud uh, container, yeah. and kids and they hung off of keychain. Most mostly kids played this game, and they hung them off their backpacks. And it, it was a thing in the nineties from Bandai. You had, to, you had to push a button every, you know, couple hours or every couple minutes to keep it alive. And, and it would literally die if you didn't feed it. Um, and it was a bit of a sensation, kind of in the, the, the pet rock phenomenon <laughs> and, you know, all those kind of things. But it definitely, you know, they made a business out of it. They sold a lot well, of They sold millions and, uh, of them. It was the thing. Yeah. Uh, I think the... Can, can you guys yeah. hear okay? Uh-huh. I think the Peridot thing is a... 
I think it's an early an early dot in maybe some coming future where if you have something persistent that you just are always blended digital physical, that's where like virtual pets, virtual friends, all of that will sort of make sense. Yep. Um, and that was actually the interesting thing about the Tamagotchi. It was instant access. The screen was always on. It was always there. You didn't have to open it. So the question is if the friction of like I have to open the app to get to my Peridot and then hold up my phone to find where it is in the room, that's like three, four more steps than a Tamagotchi. So the question is like, do people want that or they want the frictionless? Like if I, if you have a pet parrot, you just go see it. It's there. <laughs> right. So the question is how will people relate to, I think the idea of virtual pets is going to be gigantic, but I also think the average person just wants it to be zero friction, like nothing, nothing yeah, in the well, way. And yeah, well, and if you look at, you know, the, the, the $5 billion plus success of Pokemon go, um, there's, there's no reason they're not going to keep chasing that and see if they can duplicate at least a little bit of that moment of that viral, you know, shoot to the moon, lightning in a bottle effect where everybody wants to play it. Now, the question is, you know, I've only played it a little bit. Is there enough of a gamesmanship to it and a accomplishing goals part of it that will link into that part of people's brains? Or is it literally just a a digital Tamagotchi that's that's cute and more fun. I, I've only played enough of it to see the Tamagotchi part, not the Pokemon part. So I'm curious to see what I, I played it for about that. a half an hour yesterday, and I, I'm not a big gamer. I don't this sort of thing doesn't hold my attention for very long. Uh, but I thought it was very clever. The animation is great. Uh, it has, you know, you remember they bought Escher Reality, and when they bought Escher Reality, mm-hmm. we're I'm sorry, people, we're talking about Niantic. Uh, the company behind Pokemon Go launched a new game, and it's their first original title um, since since one of their debut titles, uh, which was called Ingress. Uh, so this is an original title. Obviously, Pokemon Go, they've made a ton of money, but uh, they've also made a ton of money for the people who own Pokemon, which is a licensed title. So they've, they've created their own IP. It has some of the qualities of Pokemon, but as we've been talking about it also has tamagotchi qualities virtual pet uh and the way the game works is you nurture this pet you throw it tennis balls you feed it food out of a lunchbox and um you know as it grows it acquires more abilities and then you can breed them and then it blends it you're looking at it through your smartphone camera and getting back to Escher Reality, Escher Reality did a demo either right before or right after they were acquired by Niantic that showed Pokemon running around your feet and hiding behind trees. And, you know, they're, they're on a sidewalk being occluded by, you know, passers-by. It's just amazing. It, they're doing it. It works. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is, I, as you were just talking, I was just reflecting and remembering, Roni, uh, in your Magic Leap days, you had a version of this with ILM with the porgs, right? And you had to feed the porgs. And, oh, that's uh, right. It, that it, is it right. Very, very clever. Yeah. And uh, there's, a lot of, uh, right. there's a lot of deja vu around I, that. Did, I, did, I didn't want to be snarky, but like we we kind of did this, look, as an, as an early test with porgs, with Lucasfilm. Uh, we did Create, which had all kinds of pet sea turtles and T-Rexes and all of that. I got to tell you, like, in the persistence of having a good wearable, it was amazing. Like I, I'd work and then it'd be like a sea turtle floating by and a T-Rex running under my desk. So I can imagine a future where Peridot, what they're doing is going to be something every kid plays with. The question is, is that future on the phone 
Or is it a couple iterations away where you have all day, every day, and everyone has one, and it just becomes natural and seamless? Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're, look, they're, they're climbing up Normandy Beach. Uh, everyone's climbing up Normandy. I don't know if we're off Normandy Be- Beach yet on, on AR for consumers. That's that's the question. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know. I mean, there we know certain things work. Mobile AR works. You know, it's it's the AR you everybody has got in their browser, you know, in their smartphone camera. So it's going to be the dominant form for the foreseeable future uh, until there is some other form factor emerges that you know can have mass popularity, and you know, the smartphone is you know achieved a kind of ubiquity that at least for AR gives people access to a AR basically. So it's a place to start and certainly, you know, I think could be taken to the nth level in blending with reality. If you could get rid of that huge amount of friction, but paper hanger syndrome is real. You can only do these things a couple of minutes at a time before it stops being that much fun. You know, there's, I mean, at certain points it forces you to get up and go forage which means basically swiping your camera around your yard and your bushes look to replenish your lunch pail to feed the peridot. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that gets, again, I'm not big on these things. I find that kind of tiresome, uh, but it forces you, the whole philosophy that Niantic has in creating its games, its brand, if you will, is that you have to get up and move around and go outside. You just don't sit on your butt in one place and play Pokemon. You, you've got to be engaged with the physical world. And I, it's a wonderful philosophy. Um, I don't know how far it's going to get them, but but the success of Pokemon Go uh, is something you can't argue with. It is so beautiful. Yeah. We got them far the first time, so now we get there the second time. Ingress was a, a, a success, kind of a underground success. I yes. played it when I was a much younger version of myself yeah. and there were factions and it was really using, you know, the 2G phone yeah. uh, as, a, as a portal to connect to other people and connect to other worlds. And it did work. But, you know, you're talking about a very, very uh, uh, sort of underground, small audience. Yeah, and that works. Well, that was, that was for real gamers and nerds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it worked. But, yeah. Uh, I, one other thing on this, Charlie, though, and Ted, I would say that if you look um, look at Asia, China in particular, and then Japan and Korea, um, my understanding is at least like 50 plus million, mostly younger people in China, having like fairly deep social relationships with like digital or AI entities mm-hmm. in China alone. And I think you've got an emerging set of that. Like it's not billions, but it's not hundreds of millions yet, but like the fact that they're primary social relationship is some kind of artificial creature, an AI entity, a digital friend, is, it, is an interesting mm. trend that we ought to keep tracking. Mm. Um, and I think there are much faster adopters in Asia than we are in the West. Yeah, there's a lot going on there and a lot to unpack. But, you know, these virtual influencers, you know, are a thing. Uh, and it goes way beyond little Michaela uh, on Instagram, uh, particularly in Asia, where you have virtual influencers who, you know, are inside of VR. Uh, so, and some of them are real and some of them are artific- completely artificial. Um, one one last thing about, um, that I was going to say about uh, the Tamaguchi uh, part of this is that what, the thing that is animating Pokemon Go is nostalgia. That is what brought, brings people to the game. There is something to the 
simplicity and roundness and cartoonishness of the Pokemon that makes it appealing and makes people remember them. So that when you're an adult, you're like, oh yeah, Pokemon. You know, it sort of gets reintroduced that way. And so, uh, you know, I think that's what they're going for with this, even though they're not taking the brand the way they did with the uh, with the other game, but it's still location-based. It's got better tech in it. I, I like it. I think it has a real uh, good opportunity to, uh, to make some noise about what AR can do for games. Look, it's, it's a question about like um, the companies like Niantic and also what, what earlier version of Magic League was doing was can you be a tech company and simultaneously have within you a creative yeah. studio to build mm-hmm. IPs? Or do you just have to draft off of other like drafting off Nintendo? Nintendo's a global beloved IP and people love the, you know, they, they love the games. It's it's uh, you grew up with it. It's still happening. You know, they have their own. Uh, you know, they have their own uh, consoles, right? Yeah. So they keep propagating their IP and brand for decades. So can Niantic become a Nintendo, which is like build your own beloved IPs? Mm. And and when you think about tech investors, that's alien and foreign to them. You know, like, what are you doing? Like, just draft off Nintendo. Mm. Like, doesn't sit in the spreadsheet well. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, look, I, I love to see companies that could be both, that have one foot in tech, one foot in creative, like the Pixar's and all that. But the tech investing world seems to be it's like a foreign body and the immune system starts to kill it as soon as it starts to happen. So um, I have to I have to root for this to be successful because you'd, you'd like to see more tech creative things. Come so to speaking life. of nostalgia, uh, this this time a year ago, 11 months ago at AWE, John Hankey gave a keynote. Hankey is the mm-hmm. co-founder and CEO of Niantic, which made the game Paradox that we've been talking about and Pokemon Go. Of course, and on stage, he said, you have to put your head back last year where we were in a metaverse fog. And uh, he stood on stage and he said, let's build a world that we want to spend time in, not escape from. Hmm. So go, I mean, you cannot disagree with that. (laughs) Well, and I think, you know, the the larger philosophy of a lot of companies that build video games and try and build immersive, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of video games have a, a an overt sort of violent negativity to them, but a lot don't. A lot are trying to build little mini utopias and populate them with gamers and, 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 and you know, citizens that actually want to participate in a positive way, having fun together. Uh, and that is a, you know, gigantic industry. So he's right. Uh, and and it's an obvious thing. He wasn't stating anything in my mind that was groundbreaking in any way, shape, or form. He was just stating the obvious. Can I, can I throw out one thing on that, Ted? I, I, I agree with you, but I think one of the appeals of AAA video games and why the violence is the thing that draws teenagers is that the utopian happy thing you could do with your friends, you could do in the real world. You're encouraged mm-hmm. to do that. Nothing stops us. But the kid running around Fortnite shooting things, yeah. we're not supposed to do that, right? So the escapism may be that outlet for the, you know, the sort of the primal brain, the lizard brain many people have, we all have, that has that aggression. It goes into sports, it goes into chopping wood, something. So it, are, are these violent games that outlet? And the utopian ones, well, you're fully free to do that in the real world anyway. So I wonder, is that why there's an asymmetry to the success of those things? But that's I mean, a whole I mean, other podcast. And Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you if you look at one of the most popular video games now of all time and fairly modern is Minecraft, 
And what they realize is that they actually need two versions. They need the combative version and they need the creative version. And lo and behold, there's a population that wants to do both and sort of cross over between those two worlds. So just like the real world, there are times where they want to be social and not, you know, attack each other. And there are times that they actually do want to attack each other. Uh, and I think the most popular tropes of games kind of realize that they are, oddly enough, a mirror to, to real life just on steroids, just a little more intense version of what we do. Sometimes, you know, we have arguments with our friends and our neighbors and our, our colleagues, and other times we're, you know, we're copacetic. And I think the, the, the ones that sort of touch all versions of that are the games that people like to play. Great, great segue for Juiced. I'm going to invite him uh, up onto the stage. Uh, Juiced Van Drunen, uh, entrepreneur, academic, author of the ter terrific uh, book, One Up. Juiced, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good Thank you, you so much for, for joining us. I, let me introduce my colleagues, uh, Ted Schilwitz and Roni Abovitz. I, 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 I gather uh, Ted and I both know Stephanie Lamas, which was our connection originally. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's right. And, uh, I know and, Stephanie and Roni, well. I know her well. Yeah. Yeah. She's with, with the World Economic Forum now. Uh, so, uh, anyway, well, thanks for coming on the show. We were just talking about video games. And of course, we often talk about mm -hmm. video games on our show because uh, the metaverse is part of our being. Uh, so one of the things, obviously, we follow Epic Games that sort of become the epicenter of the talk about at least there being a metaverse access through a, a 3D world access through a 2D screen. And the other part of the metaverse, of course, is the VR first metaverse as, as promoted by Facebook and the metaverse that's represented by uh, Activision properties. You know, so there are all these different metaverses, but they all seem centered around the games industry. Correct. Right. It's the um, it's the topic of conversation that we cannot get away from, but we also don't know how to approach it at the same time. But right? um, through one of my uh, activities with Makers Fund, I, I, I'm a colleague of Matthew Ball, and he and I go back and forth on this. Oh yeah. Because so often, you know, like I I kind of have to play the academic role and say well, this is going to be some corporate dystopia where, you know, it's going to be decided at the top and then roll down for all these poor, you know, mid-level managers who now have to organize these workers in some synthetic environment. Um, can we make that better, right? And if we do, like, who gets to decide what it's like? And so, you know, so often games are that first vanguard consumer base. Uh, that's the first space where you see these new adoptions occur. And in many ways, I think it's a... You know, it's a unique moment where we are. I think the, the value of the concept of the metaverse is, um, is, is fundamentally that it at least gets everybody on the same page, roughly. Right? I think, uh, Charlie, at one point during a South by Southwest talk, you said there's many definitions out there and they're all correct. Which, and, you know, and I think <laughs> what it deserves really, if, in my mind, is that you know, the metaverse as a technological concept is that it's the latest iteration in really decades long of conversation between society, culture, and technology, where, you know, previously we would call it the, the uh, super, uh, super information highway or cyberspace or some kind of other, you know, yeah. amazing thing in the future that was going to help us all. And so often do I think uh, these conversations have been lacking. I think perhaps now with the metaverse, we can take some lessons from the past, see where it broke down and say, well, how can we fix these things now before they 
get out of hand before they are totally pioneered by corporations and, and, and become totally dull. Like, how can we really make this work this time? That's the, that's the value of the metaverse for me. And I'm fascinated to hear that conversation. So, uh, qu yeah, qu question for you. This is Roni. Um, mm -hmm. I think with the, when the Internet uh, arose, it was really funded a lot by government, like DARPAnet and the infrastructure, and then companies layered on top. But I find it 100% opposite um, on, on like the next evolution of the Internet, which we which we call metaverse. Mm -hmm. Number one, like government's barely doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no real investment in there's no like public broadcasting PBS of the metaverse. Right. And it's like super funded by companies like Facebook, which rebranded meta, putting four billion a quarter. Mm -hmm. Apple putting, you know, tens of billions and Microsoft. And, you know, the stuff we did at Magically was sort of infinitesimal relative to these guys. So. I don't know how you avoid the corporate dominance in the sense that they are super funding all the technology and infrastructure mm -hmm. and government is sitting there watching that. And, and therefore, what say will government have or sort of like the the public good if someone else completely built the thing on their own in the free market? That's that's where I, I feel like this this version of the metaverse seems entirely privatized, mm -hmm. entirely funded to the benefit of the big companies that have the money to build you know, the deluxe version of it. And then there'll be maybe some freeware version, which is like really janky and running on like, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe on some kind of weird blockchain thing, who knows, but right. it's kind of like, it seems the, the the Linux side of this is dying and losing very rapidly. I mean, what's, what's your take on that? It's a, it's, it's a really astute point, obviously, but it's, it's like, where's the government in this and, and how are we going to prevent large corporations or these alienated companies, these, these capitalist institutions trying to dominate this whole thing. Uh, you know, the refresher immediately is uh, to point back to the early stages of the games industry, which was sort of teetering around, like at the end of the Cold War, uh, the US military said, look, we can't afford to just wholesale uh, pay for things anymore. We need to be more competitive. And so they started to give out these RFPs for development of simulation software. Right. As they were changing their own logic around how the military should operate as an, as an, as an organization, as an industry, they started, to, among other things, also to rely on the games industry. And the games industry took that with both hands. And so you could argue that the games industry, to some non, uh, to, to a significant degree, was founded or you know, paid for by the U.S. military and sort of the, uh, the machinations of war. So, that's, so maybe that's an improvement since then. Um, you know, the, the thing with regards to corporations that challenges them directly, I think, is uh, when you look at the um, ETF that Matthew Ball put together for the metaverse, for instance, it's like 45 or so giant companies, all of, except two are run by middle-aged men. And so, you know, you have to ask the question, given where people are today, is that like, you know, is, is that the most pioneering bunch of people out there? Is, you know, they could be the, the funders of it. But do they have the broadest set of ideas, uh, you know, between them? And at that point, you know, so often my corporate experience may be a little jaded, but, you know, so often do you see people hire diversity managers after the fact. So maybe we can hire them before and, 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 and maybe mitigate some of that corporate uh, interest a little bit uh, from the beginning. But perhaps I'm naive. Just let, let, me, let me throw. No, no, I, I think I think you're hitting a key point, And like, I think. The word metaverse to me, because I, you know, work really closely with Neil Stevenson. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a, a, it's sort of, I feel like there's a genuine authenticity to what he wrote mm -hmm. and what people are building is not that. Um, I kind of feel this, that the metaverse 
that these corporations are building. It's like a private Facebook virtual world social game world. Mm -hmm. uh, not very different from Roblox, not very different from Epic. It's just their private virtual 3D social world, not necessarily meeting the standards of interoperability and the seamlessness that you could flow across like the next evolution of the internet. More of like it's my private island. It's a it's a here's a mm -hmm. walled condominium area. You can come in, run by Meta, run by Apple or somebody. Right. Um, you know, we should maybe stop calling that metaverse and just start calling that like, their private 3D worlds. That when you enter, mm -hmm. they will strip you of your data or you'll pay a high entry fee. But it isn't that other thing like an oasis or the metaverse that is a bit more utopian. I don't know. We could we can go down a very big rabbit hole on this, but feels like we're, we're using the words that, that evoke some meaning in some people mm -hmm. to describe something that it's not really becoming as being built by these individual companies. Well, I, I also think it's interesting, you know, when you sort of, if you want to put a kind of a visual metaphor that I think will help people make sense of what you guys are talking about. If you look at this weird terminology that has jumped now many sharks called the metaverse mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of view it through the lens of baking a cake, right? So if you're going to bake a cake, if the four of us are going to bake a cake, we're probably going to need some ingredients, right? And we're going to probably agree on some commonality mm -hmm. around those ingredients. There's going to be some sugar. There's going to be some flour. There's probably going to be an egg or two. Mm -hmm. There's probably going to be some frosting, right? And we're all going to make a cake. Now, we can make it different colors. We can make it different sizes. We can charge whatever we want for it. We can market it however we want. We can bring it into a market or a, a region in a, in, a, in a way that's kind of you know individualized. But at the end of the day, the layer on top of it all is really interesting because what the utopia of all this is, is the ingredients to make the cake. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, people don't want to build a universal cake. They want to build their own cake and make right. money selling their own cake. But the ingredients are largely going to be the same. And that's kind of what we saw with what we now refer to as Web 1 and Web 2, right, is... Like there were some commonalities. We found the use cases of hypertext and HTML and, you know, and then in the professional realm, we talk about our friends at Pixar creating the USD format and sort of releasing it out into the wild mm -hmm. as a use case for everybody that has 3D software and every use, you know, population of the world that wants to build something. Here's a universal scene system, universal scene descriptor. That's kind of like the ingredients of a cake, mm -hmm. right? So the question is, from your perspective, because in, a, in your previous life, before you, I guess, went into academia full time, you were studying this from that perspective of who the hell is making money on this? Mm -hmm. How much are they being honest? And how much are they reporting on the data structure? And is their company really thriving based on those universal tenants of what was kind of the, the earlier versions of the web, which was gaming and, you know, light touch Internet and so forth and so on? Do you agree with that thesis, or am I off the mark there a little bit? Or I I agree with you. I th I think that uh, you know the metaphor of making the cake uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, but that also has some uh, assumptions already baked in it. Pardon the pun. It's, it, <laughs> right. So we're already agreeing on what we made, what we're going to make, and we already have some kind of you know funding structure behind it. It's like, well, you know. You know that I always go for the cheap eggs. I get the, the you know those refrigerated eggs from the from the grocery store, not the nice farm eggs from upstate. Uh, and but you bring homemade flour because that's you know you're very organic about this. So there's all these other things that have to happen first. My 
my personal fascination, both commercially and academically, has always been, uh, you know, that intersection between technology, um, uh, creativity, and and and, com and commerce. Really, like, how do you make things that are uh, critically acclaimed as well as just successful financially? Those moments tend to come from this murky place. Like uh, the best example over the last 10 years in gaming, for instance, is free-to-play. A game like League of Legends, 100 million monthly active users, uh, makes billions of dollars now for Tencent. Uh, you know, that started as a substitute for World of Warcraft, which in and of itself was already sort of this revolutionary concept of like these massive online worlds where we could spend time. League of Legends became a, a, a sexier version of that, a little bit more accessible version. You know, the moment you start looking into it, then it's not about like the the best and brightest technology. It's really the success of something like League of Legends is because they've made the software run on the crappiest laptop out there, thereby addressing the largest possible audience. And so from that perspective, you know, commerce can be uh, an accelerant for this widespread adoption of new technologies and new formats of how we socialize. Because at the end of the day, like gaming might be that thing that we talk about. Uh, this week, my whole calendar is filled with Zelda. The new Zelda game is out. So that's that's my week, but it's the you know it, the excuse is being part of something with other people, right? It's the socialization of that all. So to your point, it's like you know making the cake with you guys would also just be a social experiment for me. But that, that's I I already like you. I already we're already friends, and I think that that's that is the thing that combines all the components, both the commerce, the creativity, the technology, and so quickly do we forget about that, right? It becomes this more transactional model, say in a corporate setting, or it becomes this very functional, utilitarian focusing, when in fact it's the, you know, what made Pixar so great is how it makes you feel, not necessarily the, the technological formatting of its file system. If that, if that, if that answers your question. Yeah, one of the things we talk about a lot, Just, is AI. Mm -hmm. And it's impacting everything. In fact, we were saying last week, AI is kind of sucking the air out of the metaverse at the same time, it's going to remake XR. Like Roni's exact words were, AI is what XR has been waiting for. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you think it's going to impact uh, games in particular, but also this I metaverse idea that we're discussing? I, uh, I love that question. It's, um, you know, so I have a colleague at MIU, Julian Tegelius, who's been studying AI in games for 15 years or longer. And the, uh, you know, so the relationship between that industry and that technology has been very, very extensive. And it has everything to do with the fact that it just makes the experience unique to the player, right? I mean, I think we all will agree on this notion that the eventual immersion into synthetic environments isn't so much that we all experience the same objective thing. It allows us to have a personalized, customized experience in context of everybody else's um, and so we could all enter into world of warcraft but we're still kind of doing the same quests right and that personalization goes much further and you can accelerate that process much greater with ai for instance and so sure on a, on a low level we're going to have optimizations and efficiencies small studios can bang out a demo to send to a pitch to a vc and maybe get funded um, making assets that historically were sort of mind-numbing work uh, in say a role-playing thing like how many potions do you really need to produce right like what is that about it's like do you really need a human for that or can you just automate that process uh, give me every health potion in all the shades 
of gray and let's go. Um, so there's efficiencies that are obvious, but I think the fun part comes from having a sort of interconnection between the uh, proposed experience by a role-playing game set in a fantasy world in the 17th century in France. Um, you know, we could enter into that world, but we could each have our own deeply unique experience because of it. And that, I think, is really part of the evolution of AI uh, as it proposes for gaming. Uh, less so the economic things, is it's really sort of like a new brush with which we can paint. Yeah, there's a company I was writing about last week uh, called InWorld. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this company. Um, John Guetta, who's a friend of ours and a former colleague of Roni's, uh, is mm -hmm. its chief creative officer. And they are trying to make uh, sentient NPCs, if you were, or at least right. uh, NPCs that can have an active role in the game other than, you know, uh, screaming for help. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's an interesting new technology. I don't know how quickly it can get out into the world, but clearly it's it's going to change the way at least that aspect of games works. Absolutely. And Charlie, just, just to add a little bit to that, I, I think what's interesting, Juiced, is that right now you need to wait for millions of people to join a game for it to be like, okay, there's, there's a big oh, network point, right. or there's enough critical mass. Mm -hmm. I think with something like where in world is going, I think there's lots of AI things bubbling around that, mm -hmm. that may be also coming in like that. You could enter a world filled with hundreds of thousands or millions of what you believe are people. You're not going to know the difference very soon. Right. So, you know, a company could create a game, create a game world, fill it with people and AIs, and you won't know the ratio. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to yeah. be really interesting yes. where, where I look, like, oh, I have 100 million users. Does it really matter to me as the new user? I won't know. So you'll be able to right. kind of like fill it up and fill those crowd scenes and even have... In you might even have like much better tailored personal experiences because the mm -hmm. people you meet might learn about you and suddenly you develop more real friendships. It's going to get very interesting because it could change the dynamics of like user acquisition and why you chase a certain kind of audience. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The, um, I mean, yeah, well, there's, a, there's an interesting, there's an interesting precursor to that, uh, Roni, that you're talking about where uh, there are certain light touch games, most you know people that play on the phone that have these kind of non-synchronous um, play with mm -hmm. a worldwide audience. So, you know, you play this word with friends thing and then you play your turn and it goes and hunts around and finds somebody to play the opposite way. And it feels like you're kind of connected in real time to those users when in actuality you're not, right? It's, they may have played that turn eight hours ago and then it kind of links to it and you, you create this artificial reality that you're in sort of a social environment mm -hmm. when actually it's just a computer mm -hmm. fooling you. Um, and you know what John Gata and others are doing is kind of that sort of taking that to the next level is you're sort of fooling your brain into thinking there are actually real other real players uh, contributing and, and, and being a part of the experience when in actuality uh, it may be a ghost town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then many of these sort of pseudo metaverses we've seen so far are ghost towns. So uh I think there is a business in terms of creating the illusion that your ghost town is not a ghost town. Um, yeah. I, very I, to, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's the, um, so the, the, the industry pushes in that direction, at least from where I sit, right? It's the, the same level of uh, acceleration that we saw a decade or 15 years ago with World of Warcraft, for instance, where a lot of the administrative components, the bureaucratic parts of a role-playing game where you do, where you got your 12 side, your 20 sided die and you're just rolling, 15 dice at the same time, uh, you know, all that adding up of your, of your, of your character aspects 
uh, in a conflict with some creature, that's very tedious work. And having a dungeon master and all the administration and the preparation for that. So technology in that sense proposes, like a faci- you know, it facilitates that for you. Like you don't have to wonder about loot drops because it's all done for you. And so it takes all the administrative parts out of the experience. I think this is the same uh, piece, like these uh, very deep non-player characters that are generated by AI in some fashion. I think that's an, that's an add-on that, that, that enriches the experience. What it does, um, and you start to see this in the research now more recently where even, you know, and this is role-playing, but if you go to Roblox, which is arguably far more social in nature, um, you know, what tends to drive this, the activity on servers is less so the interoperability or the size of the network and much more the in-game incentives for people to play. And so if you just have lots of stuff going on, people will continue to play and keep coming back as opposed to like, well, this is the server with the most people. You know, having lots of people in these online worlds is not necessarily the best model for everybody. I think to your point is like having these artificial agents in there, even if you're fully aware of the fact that some of them might not be actual people, I think that that makes the experience exciting for people. And I think that that's a bigger draw that we'll see more of and becomes more central to the business models than we've seen in the past. Like it's possible to do that now. Just have you ever studied the exact balance of like, I don't want a ghost town, but I don't want to be in like a crowded mall with two, two million people. Like what's, yeah, what's, what's the, the social size we like that's optimized, you know? It's a good question. So the, um, so off the bat, I don't know the exact number, but I do know the research that could, that probably wrote about it. Uh, Nick Yee, uh, who wrote a book called The Prometheus Paradox. That's No, The Proteus Paradox, sorry. Um, he writes uh, from a very quantitative setting about role-playing games and saying like, okay, so at some point people just teeter out. It's that sort of platonic observation that you can only be familiar and have deep emotional connection to a limited number of people. Like some at some point past 150, you just kind of max out on what you're able to uh, to to put out into the world and receive in return. So his version, uh, Nick Yee's book, discusses um, World of Warcraft over a long period of time, and it looks at the different connections people make. It also goes into, like, you know, when we enter into the world, and, and that's something that I think the, the, the AI part of this and, and, and so on hasn't really addressed so much. But the moment we enter into synthetic worlds, we can choose to be anything or anyone or look any way that we want. Um, his observation is that most people stay very close to who they are in the real world in spite of the fact that they have this freedom. And so it's interesting to ask that question again in this new context and say, well, sure, we could reach out more of these, more of these people, but we can also sort of reflect ourselves differently. Maybe now in, this, in, the, in the timeline between these things, people have a greater need for that. Or maybe still we just always keep one foot in reality and one foot in the virtual whatever that means right and so so i'm very curious of how much we uh, reimagine the new world in terms of the old in a sense yeah one you know we're we're gonna run up against time in a minute juice but i wanted to ask you and and sort of change the direction of the conversation a little bit toward vr mm-hmm. and where you think we because I'll, I'll tell you the reflection that i'm thinking of especially because you're so engaged with sort of the looking at the AAA part of the game world um, was that Meta had a big announcement that they made at least to the Quest users 
um, at the beginning of November, they said they had sold a billion and a half dollars worth of software uh, mm. in, since they had uh, opened the Quest store in 28, at the end of 2018. And then the next week, Call of Duty, um, the new Call of Duty title dropped and it made 800,000 $800 million in its first weekend and $700 million its second weekend. So that one AAA mm. game title outgrossed all Quest uh, software sales in over three years. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a real commentary on the relative size of the industries. So yeah. the question is, is VR going to going to scale scale is the problem right now just that we need a better cheaper headset or uh, are there other issues that are going to affect the growth of vr at least as a game platform mm -hmm. it's it's a so i'll give you my my immediate bias since you also know stephanie uh, yeah but stephanie and i were working together she would lead the vr uh, effort at superdata and i would always be the in-house skeptic They're like i don't believe it i don't think so and and the reason, very simply, was, uh, you know, from a game's perspective, it, it goes back to the Virtual Boy with Nintendo, which was this standalone device that had oh, we remember 12, it. Don't you 12 worry. titles, we remember it. <laughs> black and red graphics. And so naturally, like, I haven't progressed in my thinking at all. So I would just hold on <laughs> to that, saying, like, well, you know, so just to kind of be the contrarian. Um, I like the concept very much. I like this idea. It's just never seemed to, of course... Um, uh, reach at adoption, but that doesn't mean that it's not feasible. So the the, the way that I think about VR, or I've come to think about it, is uh, before we have World of Warcraft, and I'm sorry I'm referring to this game so much now, but it seems relevant to the conversation. Before World of Warcraft was this blowout success, and by blowout success I mean they had bought server space for 400,000 users, thinking, man, if we reach that by the end of next year, that's going to be an amazing success. They they use that up within the first two months of their launch, right? So they yeah they had four million users, not four. Yeah, exactly. They users. they totally underestimate. And the reason was what Blizzard turned out to be very good at is um, EverQuest by Sony was already a popular MMO. They just made what's already popular more accessible to audiences. And I think what we're looking for in the context of VR and XR and AR and MR and all of those um, is someone to really make that transition from what is much more of a fringe activity to become a more centralized one. So when I hear um, that Tim Cook is now uh, capable of uh, bossing the design team at Apple around more so than he could when Jean-Yves was still in charge, you know, that, that seems to suggest that we are having some kind of change in there and that they may be the player that can validate or bring to the space the kind of numbers that it should possibly deserve. Um, but at the same time, it's like, look, you know, it's, that's the transition that I'm looking for at a, at a higher level. So I would love to see that happen. Um, but historically, like, it's, it's always going to come down to like use case and some popular title and some cool thing, less so than the functionality. Like people, uh, you know, I mean, it's the, 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 the ability of the technology in the history of gaming isn't the biggest driver, even though the marketing people will always tell you that. It's the best Xbox ever. It's like, yeah, okay, but what about this Switch, which is really just two GameCubes glued together? That's outselling everybody, right? So the, 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 the capability of the technology historically was a selling point, but I think in terms of adoption, it's really about application and 
you know, uh, having a much broader range of things to do in the space. So that's what I'm looking for with VR. I, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's still an order of magnitude smaller, but that doesn't mean that it can't make it to the mainstream. It just needs that champion to bring it there. Um, one last thing, and I think we need to wind the show up, is the Activision Blizzard merger. Uh, I mean, the Activision Microsoft acquisition. They The merger with right. Blizzard took place, I don't know, 10 years ago. But <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's going to go through? It's being challenged by uh, British regulators now. Yeah, I continue to hold on to the fact that it's going to go through. Uh, the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority in England, they said, no, thank you. Um, but they did it in such a way that it seems reasonable to appeal. You know, they changed the goalpost along the way. They, they started yeah. off saying Call of Duty is everything. And then at the end, they said, well, we're not going to allow it. Uh, they sort of did a fake out. And the, the reason was, oh, well, cloud gaming will not be as competitive uh, as it should be, uh, even though Activision That was a no kind plans. of weird objection, I thought. It's it seems all because a little they were shift. they were yeah. objecting based on their future behavior. Future like behavior. You said you're not going to do it, but the temptation to do it is too great. So you will it's, as it, soon as you can. Exactly, and it's so that's that's quite the amount of providence from a single group of people in England to then determine yeah. a seventy billion dollar deal. The EU is scheduled to release its opinion on the twenty second of May, and they're leaning towards a yes. So then what? Like, so is that, does that isolate the, the you know, post-Brexit England in some meaningful way, or is this grounds for appeal? We'll see. I, I, I'm still positive on the fact that it's going to go through. And, and what do you think that's going to mean for the games industry in general? <laughs> well, not as much or as... Or has it already the, uh, had the effect it was going to have? The, it, it pushes to the forward, foreground the popularization of cloud gaming and streaming games. Um, I think it pushes to the foreground, uh, you know, the business side of things of put always having more consolidation. Microsoft buying Activision is just one of a, a row of transactions and investments that we've seen over the last few years, right? Take-Two acquired Zynga, uh, EA has been buying Glue Mobile, uh, Codemasters, and a bunch of other companies. Uh, then there's all these funds out there. So Embracer, which is uh, the, now the largest European game maker by market cap, it's funded by uh, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund uh, and Savvy Gaming, which is a subsidiary. So there's all this money flowing in the industry and they're all consolidating, right? We, we see um, Rovio is getting acquired now. So, so there's, for Activision Blizzard it being acquired by Microsoft, that's really just one of the deals being done. It's the biggest one, but it's just one of them. Uh, to your point of the, how does that impact the games industry? Well, you know, that and everybody else is just consolidating uh, to, to go back to uh, risk mitigation. They all want to own intellectual property. They all want to bundle their distribution channels because, you know, after this accelerated growth during the pandemic, now we have a flatter period and things aren't as easy. So they're just trying to make life easy for themselves by owning more assets in the market. So that's 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 the broader context mm. for that. I'm excited to see how that plays out. You know, like um, we have uh, we're in the second half of the console cycle. Uh, we have a lot of new games coming out. So you know that keeps moving the needle. The the fact that the Mario movie came out recently and sold a billion dollars at the box office, I think that's going to put a lot of investors and creators on notice, saying like maybe we should be expanding beyond the realm of gaming. And you know that makes and that creates a whole new chapter in its uh, history. 
Great. Well, thank you for that um, great insight and for taking the time to uh, hang out with us this morning. And uh, I really, really, really appreciate getting to know you a little better. Hopefully we'll see you in the real uh, very soon. Uh, I hope so. so. That's our show this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back next Friday. Juiced, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you all.